This morning, we are hearing from a good friend of mine, Scott Pitch. He'll tell you a little bit more about himself once he gets up here, but he has asked me to read the passage he's focusing on today. So, Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I'm used to teaching in the classroom, so this is kind of this is a new uh, a new world here. I'm used to being down and having my table with everything spread out, so I think I'm uh, I think I'm ready to go. So uh, obviously I'm not Pastor Justin. So if you're new this week, I've met a couple of people that are here for the very first time. I'm not the usual pastor here. Uh, Justin is uh, on a trip, and obviously, and so he asked me to fill in. Um, my name is Scott. I've lived in this community for quite a while, although not as long as many of you out there. Um, I was part of the team that helped uh, begin Alaska Christian College just down the road here, kind of tucked back in the trees. That was back in 2001, Um, and that's been quite an adventure there. If if you're not that familiar with with, uh, ACC, uh, the majority of our students come from Village, Alaska, and so that's that's been my life for the last, uh, well, for for going on 20 20 years now, but... um, I did not grow up in Alaska. I was born in Wisconsin, Iowa. I'm a Midwest boy who always wanted to live in the mountains, and so this is, uh, is, I guess, in a way, a dream come true. My children are living the childhood that I always wanted, Um, and so uh, I hope they're pretty grateful for it, too. Anyway, um, so I wanted to start with a, a story. It's, it's, it's not necessarily a story about me, and I can't believe I actually found this on the internet since I stole it. I gave credit to where I stole it from, but 1934 World's Fair. I don't even know if they have uh, World's Fairs anymore. I'm, I'm not even sure, but my grandfather was 16 years old, lived in Milwaukee, just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so probably about 100 miles or so uh, away from Chicago. I think it does say on there, Chicago. So he and his buddies wanted to go to the World's Fair, but they had no way to get down there. So they figured the way that we're going to get down there is we're going to jump a train. You know, you always see the, you might see pictures of people who jumped trains and so forth, and they found one. 
but they had to have some kind of an alibi. So I don't know, I don't know how many friends it was, let's just say it was a group of five guys. So they made up a plan that, okay, you're gonna tell your mom that you're staying at my house, and you tell your mom you're staying at John's house, and Steve, you tell that you're staying at Paul's house. And they had it all worked out, jumped the train, took it down to Chicago, spent the night in Chicago. I don't even know where they slept. I don't know what they did at the World's Fair. Next day, they find the train that's coming back. It's gonna go to Green Bay. So they get on that train, they're coming home. The train slows down as it's entering Waukesha, which was the town outside of Milwaukee. It slows down to pick up the mail. And at that point, they all had to make a jump for it. Well, four of them jump and one doesn't. He freezes and they're yelling at him, you gotta jump, come on, he can't do it. And there goes the train. They're like, oh, for crying out loud, okay? So the train goes through town and it slows down through this crazy intersection. And I remember going there as a kid, like five roads literally come together at one place and then they put a railroad track right through the middle of it. So there's cars at every stoplight imaginable there. And that's the last chance. He doesn't jump there. The train's going all the way to Green Bay before it's gonna slow down again. And who knows when he's gonna get back home. So he decides, I've gotta do it. Train slows down. He decides to make a jump for it. As he jumps, at least according to my grandfather, he lands, does a somersault, comes up, lands on the hood of a car, and it's his dad. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, they all, uh, they all got it. He had to come clean with the story. Now, my kids know this story. I've told this story. This is a very, very familiar story in the Pitch family. In fact, so much so that one of the kids, I don't remember which one it was, shared that story at their school, when I think it was Rachel, uh, when they had to do a family story day. So it's a very, very familiar story. And as my grandfather told it, it got better throughout the years. But, so the reason I share that story is a little bit about my family, but also that the story that Ian read for us and our story for today is a pretty familiar story to us. And I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but there was probably a chance that when we were in the middle of reading it, you probably were thinking, okay, what am I going to do for lunch? What do I have to do this afternoon? Because we hear this story so... We probably have heard this story many, many times. But there's elements in this story that we really don't know much about because we don't really know the history and the culture of that time. And when we take the time to learn some of those things, this story can really come to life for us. Here's another picture I stole from the internet, but one I gave the credit for that too. Found this to be really an interesting depiction of the story. I, I'm convinced that Jesus in his growing up years, maybe he witnessed this actually happen. Maybe not the Samaritan component, but Nazareth was a village that was about 90 miles from Jerusalem. And the family that he grew up in, they were good Jewish people. They would go to Jerusalem every year for Passover. That was a 90-mile journey. And probably sometime along those lines, maybe Jesus was 6, 8, 10 years old. I don't know. Maybe he saw a man that had been beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. So this compassion that we see in Jesus as an adult grew, in a way, out of his childhood. 
and, and witnessing events like this. And why didn't people help? There's so many more things in the story that we really don't have time to get into. So we're only going to be able to focus on three things. And they're all going to have to do with the subject of neighbor. And the first question, if we follow suit with what the expert in the law, and the reason that I had Ian read out of the NIV, I don't always use the NIV, but I like the language, I think it's helpful. An expert in the law, when we hear expert, this is somebody who should know what's going on. They know a thing or two, and, they, and he challenged Jesus. He said, all right, just who is my neighbor? And, and when you read, it, it's almost kind of snobby-like in a way. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know exactly how the interchange happened, but it kind of seems a little, a little, it might be kind of snobby. Well, the first thing to note, there's obvious racism going on in this story. There's obviously ethnic differences between these two. And I think Jesus does that for a reason. While racism is not the central component of the story, we can't pretend that it's not there. There is definitely an element to it. And you probably are somewhat well-versed that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. Okay, they considered Samaritans to be half-breeds, and there's all kinds of history that goes with that that we have no time to get into. But there was some extreme Jewish laws about segregation and separation. And Jesus, in a small way, in this story, is saying those need to go. This is not the heart of God for us to be segregated like this. And so who is my neighbor, moving beyond the racial component? Well, in a way, in a way, the answer is anyone who has need. No matter what they look like, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from. That's, that's a lot of people. We have a lot of people who have need in our community. You can't help everybody, but you might be able to help more people than you think. In fact, I heard Rana just mention Love, Inc. If you guys are familiar with the ministry of Love, Inc., the people they help in our community, they call them neighbors in need. I think that's a really good, um, that's a description of people who from time to time, need help. Even those of us that have it together need help from time to time. So just who is my neighbor? Now, one of the things I do at the college is I head up something called the Ministry Practicum Program, where students are required to do 10 hours of service in the community. And most of the students actually really enjoy doing it. There's, from time to time, I get some stubborn students who kind of challenge me, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. And my answer to them a lot of times is the same. You know, what does that say about your heart? That you don't want to help people in our community. That you want to serve God and serve others. So maybe a better question to ask is not, you know, all right, just who is my neighbor? But maybe a better question would be, to whom must I become a neighbor? Now, Justin talked last week um, about the way forward to 2018. 
for Peninsula Grace Church. And as you guys work together on your vision and mission, if you choose as a church to become neighbors to our community, there will be loads of people in here. And those people will want to give back because they'll be very grateful for the way this church has poured into them. But a follow-up question to, to whom must I become a neighbor? And this is just being honest. How much is that going to cost me? Don't we deep down ask that? Whatever, you go to the dentist, you go to the, get your car fixed, how much is that going to cost me? We, we, we count the cost on things. Now, years ago, um, I was dip netting with our oldest daughter, who, by the way, is away at college. Um, we have a friend who lets us dip net from their property. It's awesome. We don't have to go to the beach. Sorry if you like the beach, but it's really nice. We just go down, and it's just my family and I. And one evening, there was a man that was floating by in his boat, because we're right there, and so maybe from here to the wall are the people that are in the boats. And I don't have permission to share this story. I don't even think he lives in our community anymore, but we'll call him Simon. So one night, Simon was coming by, and I told my daughter, you see that man right there? That's one of the most generous men in our community. When my kids used to be involved in 4-H and they would sell their animals down at the fair, this man was always there buying animals on behalf of his company. I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars. And when I was involved coaching Little League, he was also another coach. We had a meeting one night. Little League needs this. We need these supplies. He said, I'll buy those. The amount of money that he gave. He was a very, very generous man. And I'm sure that he gave more than I was even aware of. But his, his care for this community cost him a great deal financially. So when we count the cost, obviously, the first thing that comes to mind is that it could cost us money. To whom must I become a neighbor? How much is it going to cost? Loving our neighbor can be costly. Now, in the story that we have, the amount of money that the Samaritan gave was equal to, at least from the research that I've done, at least a week's wages, maybe two. Can you imagine giving that much money to somebody you don't even know? That's a pretty big sacrifice. And that's the example we have in the Samaritan here. Jesus says, when we give to the needy, and we should give, that it could cost us. Now, when our youngest son, Trey, was two months old, he ended up having to spend the night in the emergency room in the hospital. He had RSV. You just imagine his two-month little body trying to breathe and get air. And it, was, it was pretty awful. My wife spent the night with him in the, in the hospital bed. Um, and that was, that was, it was a scary time when I think back to that. But we had a doctor who came in who did her nightly routine. And she came in, she checked him, things are getting better. The next day on uh, discharge, she said to us, well, I'm your doctor now. I'm not really taking any new patients because I'm already so busy. But now that we've established this relationship, I need to continue to care for your son and for your family. So now I'm your family doctor. And so when we count the cost, another thing is that we have to, it could cost us time 
to establish a relationship. And that's certainly what the Samaritan did. Near the end of the story, we're told that he wanted to continue a relationship with both the man and the innkeeper. And looking at the culture and the history of that time, innkeepers could be human traffickers. If you weren't able to pay your debt in Jewish society, you could go into slavery. And people who would stay at inns and other places and they couldn't pay their debt, sometimes upon eviction, they were sold into slavery. And so the Samaritan in his care for this wounded man and the relationship that he built with him, he said, let me know, innkeeper, if there's more that I need to pay because I don't want this to happen to this man. And so get a hold of me if there's more that I owe. He, he started a relationship. Also, and this is something that maybe we don't usually think about, it could have cost him his life. Again, the whole Jewish-Samaritan thing going on here. Not good. Didn't get along. The smart thing for the Samaritan taking the guy to Jericho would be to take him to the edge of town, leave him, disappear, and hope that somebody would come out and care for the man. If he was really that concerned about his life, that's what he could have done. But his care for this man would have been akin to an Apache in the 1870s taking a wounded U.S. soldier back to his own fort and then providing the means to care for his recovery. That, that kind of care would have been unthinkable in that context. And yet Jesus says, this is what love for neighbor may cost us. Now, whether that's literal or whether that's metaphorical, that's for you to decide in your particular context. But this is not metaphorical. As you look at your vision and mission in 2018 as a church, it must cost. A vision that doesn't cost is not worth investing in. A vision that doesn't cost is not worth giving to or laying your life down for. So dream big, listen to God, be ready to give, whether that's through money, through relationships, or by giving up potentially on your own personal agenda. So to whom must I become a neighbor? And how much is it going to cost me? Those are the first two questions. There's a third one to consider. And this one might take the most introspection on our part, to use a big college word there for you. Is my religion getting in the way of loving my neighbor? Now, Pastor Justin joked last week, when I was here, uh, about those in your New Year's resolutions, he didn't have anybody raise their hand, and I won't either, but um, one of my New Year's resolutions that actually happened even before the New Year uh, was I wanted to start working out and exercising a lot more. I wanted to be religious about it. 
And people have asked me over the years, are you working out? Are you exercising? I'd say, well, I'm not being really religious about it right now. That's a term that we kind of throw around in our culture, meaning to be disciplined, to be structured, to keep, to keep at it. All necessary qualities. Athletes know that. Teachers, business people. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's important to be religious at times. A couple weeks ago, there was a day when um, I hadn't gotten my workout yet, okay, and I was planning on doing it there that evening, and we were doing something as a family I don't even remember. We came home, and I was ready to go on a workout. My son Trey says, Dad, I want to go to the rec center tonight. And I said, yeah. Okay, Krista got on. My wife, she looked, and, and uh-oh, rec center closes at 8. That's what Facebook said. It was 7.22. I said, all right, Trey, let's go. And in, in, inwardly, I'm, I'm thinking of my religious schedule. I've got to work out. I've got to work out. My mantra, no days off. No days off. Well, now I'm taking a day off. Well, I went. I gave up on my religion. Of course, we get there and find out that it didn't close till 10. <laughs> so I could have gotten my workout in. But I gave up on my religion in a way, if you want to say, to do what was right. Now, there's religious practices built into this story. Very few of us know about them because we're not from that culture. We're not from the first century. We're not priests. We're not Levites. And none of that really has a lot of bearing on our life, so we don't know the inside scoop on some of this. But it dramatically changes the way we read and interpret the story. Now, over the centuries... The priest and the Levite, they've gotten a pretty bad rap. Why in the heck didn't these guys help? Why did they go way out of their way not to help this guy? Well, the reason that they didn't help this guy is because they weren't allowed to. What, is, what does that mean? Well, we may not know why I just made that statement, but the, but the expert in the law, the guy that Jesus was teaching, he would have known this because he would have known the law. So for a little help, that's the picture of the book. And since the book is really big, I just made a photocopy of it here so that I could... I'll just read you a little bit that gives us some insight into why the priest and the Levite didn't help because these two men served in the temple and there were some strict laws about what you could and could not do if you're going to serve the people you have to remain clean and pure so here's the dilemma first for the priest the wounded man could have been dead i don't know if we think about that a lot he couldn't tell the guy was unconscious he could have been dead if so the priest who approach him would become ceremonially defiled. That's a big word in there. Meaning he would become unclean. And if defiled, he would need to return to Jerusalem and undergo a week-long process of ceremonial purification. He was likely on his way home from work. 
So he'd have to return to Jerusalem for a week. It would take some time. Meanwhile, he could not eat from the tithes or even collect them. The same ban would apply to his family and servants. His family would not be able to eat potentially for a week. What's more, the victim along the road might have been Egyptian, Greek, Syrian, or Phoenician, in which case the priest was not responsible under the law to do anything. I see some racism again. If the priest approached the beaten man and touched him and the man later died, the priest would have been obliged to rend his robes and in so doing would have violated laws against the destruction of valuable property. The poor priest did not have an easy time trying to determine his duty under the law. After deciding that his ceremonial purity was too important to risk, he continued on his way. And then along comes the Levite. The Levites function in the temple as assistants to the priests. This particular Levite probably knew that a priest was ahead of him on the road and may have been an assistant to that same priest. Since the priest had set a precedent... The Levite could pass by with an easy conscience. Should a mere Levite upstage a priest? Did the Levite think he understood the law better than the priest? Furthermore, the Levite might have to face that same priest in Jericho that night. Could the Levite ride into Jericho with a wounded man whom the priest, in obedience to his understanding of the law, have opted to ignore? Such an act would be an insult to the priest. It was quite the dilemma for these men because of the Jewish laws that they were supposed to follow. So, for them, was Jesus trying to teach them, ask them, is my religion getting in the way of doing what is right? Is my religion getting in the way of truly loving my neighbor. Now, when it comes to this question, or just our faith in general, we react in different ways. There were many people in Jesus' day, good Jewish people, who pulled back from society, from the established order. They became separatists. They felt like this was their way to remain holy in that culture. But it's really interesting to note that we have no recorded instances of Jesus ever visiting or reaching out to these communities. He took a show on the road, if you will, to the people. And so should we. We can't care for our neighbor when we cut ourselves off from them. The religious big shots of the day They were quick to point a finger at the sinners who weren't measuring up. It was because of them, they thought, that were living under the judgment of God and under the oppression of Roman people. You know, Jesus comes along and says just the opposite. It's actually because of you, elitists, because of your ego-driven financial security-driven life that you live. You're keeping the people in your care in bondage. According to Jesus, they should have known better. So a question for us. Is your religious 
elitism keeping you from doing the right thing in our community? You might think, well, I don't do certain things, and I don't go certain places, and I don't associate with certain people because I'm a Christian. Well, we don't see that example in the life of Jesus. And along with that same thought, Judaism in the first century had very strict laws about many things. And the priests and the Levites and the expert in the law, the religious big shots, the day it was their duty to help people to keep these laws. Well, churches today have laws too, whether written or unwritten. Well, you know, you should dress a certain way, act a certain way, think a certain way, and by all means live a certain way. In a way, this makes Christianity a lot easier. Look like this, think like this, and you're a Christian. But we have a lot of people in our community who don't fit into that mold. And you might never see them here on a Sunday morning. In fact, there might even be people here today who don't completely fit that mold. But they won't ever talk about it because they're too afraid of being judged. Is my religion getting in the way? Are the laws and the structure and the religious nature that I follow keeping me from doing what is right? Is it keeping me from truly being a neighbor and caring about others? Just like I turn to the students and say, might be time for a heart check. I think that's the heart of what Pastor Justin was talking about last week as you as a church do a heart check in this new year. What kind of a neighbor will Peninsula Grace Church be to this community? It's an important question to answer. So I'll share a story here uh, in closing. This was, I used to teach a class called Intro to... Um, Christian theology, and I'd like to start every class with reading a story. Um, this is one I picked for today. By the way, this is written by Tony Campolo. If you ever heard of him, he's a, a very known speaker, author, um, professor. Uh, not everybody likes him a whole lot because he's pretty outspoken. If you need some good stories, just come to Philadelphia is where he lives, and wander around the streets downtown. You will meet many wonderful people and have many varied experiences. You will certainly come away enriched by some strange encounters. One day, about the noon hour, I was walking down Chestnut Street when I noticed a bum walking toward me. He was covered with dirt and soot from head to toe. There was filthy stuff caked on his skin. But the most noticeable thing about him was his beard. It hung almost to his waist, and there was rotted food stuck in it. The man was holding a cup of McDonald's coffee, and the lip of the cup was already smudged from his dirty mouth. As he staggered toward me, 
He seemed to be staring into his cup of coffee. Then, suddenly, he looked up and yelled, Hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? I have to admit that I really didn't. But I knew that the right thing to do was to accept his generosity. So I said, I'll take a sip. As I handed the cup back to him, I said, you're getting pretty generous, aren't you? Giving away your coffee. What's gotten into you today that's made you so generous? The old derelict looked straight into my eyes and said, well, the coffee was especially delicious today. And I figure if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. I thought to myself, oh man, he's really set me up. It's going to cost me five bucks. I asked him, I suppose there's something I can do for you in return, isn't there? The bum answered, yeah, you can give me a hug. To tell you the truth, I was hoping for the five bucks. <laughs> he put his arms around me and I put my arms around him. Then suddenly I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. People were passing us by on the sidewalk. They were staring at me. There I was, dressed in establishment garb, hugging this dirty, filthy bum. I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. Then, little by little, my embarrassment changed to awe and reverence. I heard a voice echoing down the corridors of time, saying, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was naked, did you clothe me? I was sick, did you care for me? I was the bum you met on Chestnut Street, did you hug me? For if you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. The last words of our parable today, Jesus tells the expert in the law, go and do likewise. I pray you have it in your heart to do as Jesus says. Amen.